Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before we get started with today's show, we want to thank everyone who took the Politics Guys listener survey. There were a bunch of you, and uh, we haven't quite gotten around to collating and analyzing all the results yet, but that's going to happen, and it will definitely help us uh, expand and improve the show. So thanks very much for that. And speaking of surveys, a team of researchers from Stony Brook University have asked us to help them study the messages that political parties send to their members. The survey is confidential and it only takes a few minutes to finish. Now, the link is one of these really long things, but I will post it in the show notes. So if you'd be willing to do that, that would be great. Help the advancement of science, political science, that sort of thing, you know. Um, Also, they asked if you do take the survey that you not post about it in the comments section of our Facebook discussion so you don't, you know, influence other people who haven't taken it. Thanks very much. All right, so we start today's show with the story that's dominated the news all week, the aftermath of the tragic shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. You know, what some argue makes this different from other school shootings, far too many of them, is that a lot of the students have organized politically, hoping to put pressure on state government in Florida, which, by the way, has some of the most permissive gun laws in the country. Uh, In 2017, for instance, Guns and Ammo ranked it the 12th best state for gun owners. Um, And they're also hoping to pressure the federal government to take the sort of uh, significant action that hasn't been taken after so many other of these school shootings. And While President Trump posted a listening session with a number of students, some conservative commentators were actually wondering whether the students were being used as, I don't know, I guess you call it emotional pawns in what they sometimes call the left's battle to uh, eviscerate the Second Amendment. Uh, We'll get to that in, in just a minute, I'm sure. But in terms of policy proposals, President Trump has directed the Justice Department to move forward with a regulation banning bump stocks, those devices that can turn a semi-automatic weapon into really the equivalent of a full automatic, though he's resisted calls to ban AR-15s and other assault-style weapons that have been you know, used so very often in these shootings. And he's also come out against active shooter training in schools, calling it crazy and too hard on the kids, but he seems to be favoring arming a significant percentage of teachers, somewhere between 10 to 40 percent. Though, honestly, Jay, to me, this feels much more like an off-the-cuff idea than a, a real policy proposal. And, you know, more plausible proposals the president seems to endorse, at, at least for now, because gosh knows he's a changeable guy, are improvements to the background check system and possibly a raised age limit for buying certain weapons. And, of course, all of this coincided with the annual Conservative Political Action Committee, or CPAC, conference, at which featured speaker Wayne LaPierre, the president of the NRA, really lashed out, in some instances, to great applause at those who are calling for firearm restrictions. He, He talked about the shameful politicization of tragedy by the left, arguing that they, meaning the left, of course, hate individual freedom, they don't care about our school children, and they want to make all of us less free. So there's a lot, a lot to chew on there. Jay, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about, you know, what's happened this week? Uh, any policy changes you think might be coming? And, and what, if anything, you'd like to see come of this? What do I, well, again, as, as, as I always promise or preface uh, most of these, most of my statements, it, it doesn't so much 
what I think, uh, what I'm trying to do is sort of be a, a prism for the uh, conservative views that are out there and sort of, um, uh, again, ex- explain and, and uh, uh, discuss those views, where they come from and why, why they're there, and, and then look at the policy and what might happen next. So with, with that in mind, um, I think the bump stock issue uh, I think that's that's a winner all the way around. Uh, the NRA doesn't have any serious objection, uh, uh, from what I understand, to uh, 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 making bump stocks, uh, regulating them as as uh, these other uh, class one firearm uh, machine gun type type uh, things that are, there's already a regulatory system in place. It's just adding them to that. Uh, I think that is a common sense solution that everyone can get behind. Um, the age requirement, uh, my sense from that is that most conservatives uh, um, and, and most commentators, it's really, that's really sort of a cosmetic, um, you, you know, how much of a different, it, it wouldn't have stopped, uh, for example, um, uh, the, well, the, the Columbine shooters uh, going way back, it wouldn't have stopped um uh, I believe Adam Lanza was uh, uh, again stole the weapons from from her mother. Uh, the, the, the evidence shows that for the most part, uh, most of these younger shooters uh, get the weapons illegally. Now, this wasn't the case in in this situation, um, but I, I don't I don't know that as if the goal is to really prevent mass shootings. I don't know that the age limit does a whole lot for that. Um, so. You know, setting that aside. Now, the the assault weapons ban—that's the next uh, piece of this. And I I know our listeners are 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 very smart and very bright, and they know that um, when the term assault weapon is used, that's really sort of an imprecise term. There was the assault weapons ban back in '94 to '99, uh, where a, a classification of weapons were banned, and, and they were called assault weapons, but that definition didn't have anything really to do with their their firepower capacity. It was more a cosmetic um, uh, labeling um, based on based on non firepower. So setting that aside, I, I will um, I will just in the interest of um, making easier, I'll, I'll still refer to it as assault weapons. But um, I, I don't I don't know where where we we go on that because. There is a certain um, appeal to saying, well, let's ban these because there's a common sense thing of, well, look, nobody who really needs one of these, right? Uh, It's not something you need for hunting. It's not something you need for personal protection. And there is a a big piece of the populace who who looks on it that way and says, uh, let's ban them because nobody really needs them. there's another segment of the, of the population, though, and this is the the segment that is often ignored. And I think you referred to it a couple of weeks ago as, as sort of the the gun culture, and and maybe we need a, a better word for it because that sounds kind of ugly. But um, again, that's that's the word we have right now. So let, let's call it a, a gun culture uh, out there that says, "Well, look, this is a legal weapon to buy. Uh, I've got one. Um, uh, I like it. I like having." Uh, um, uh, you know, AR-15s, assault weapons. Um, I'm not causing anyone any harm. Uh, so stay out of my business. And there's there's that sense. And I, I think so often the 
uh, folks in cities and uh, you know the coastal elites, as it were, uh, just just don't understand that mindset. Um, that look, here's something that uh, you know people are using, possessing legally, have had for years legally, um, and the government wants to take that take it away from them. Um, so, and I mean, I'm, I think that's just a huge hurdle that we need to get over because it's sort of Again, two completely different uh, cultures, as it were, sort of trying to talk to each other on this. That I hit all. I didn't. I didn't talk about uh, the background check system. I, I, I think there's a, there's really hope for for big improvements on the background check system because that's something that Republicans uh, and uh, the NRA uh, can get behind, have pushed for for a long time, uh, and Democrats would be hard play, hard pressed not to. Uh, say let's let's have better background check systems. I, I think the the game plan might be well we'll trade better background check systems for uh, upping the age limit and uh, uh, um, assault weapon bans or something like that. Um, but that's that's a again strategic question down the road. Well, that there, there's a lot there, Jay. Um, I guess a couple of things I want to say. Obviously, you're right about the assault weapons thing, but I guess I would also point out that, you know, certainly we don't want to ban weapons based on cosmetics. That doesn't make any sense at all. But but it also seems to me that a big part of the problem is weapons that you can, you know, uh, large magazines where you can just basically, you know, pull the trigger a bunch of times very quickly and kill a lot of people. And so I would say it's, it, I would argue it's more of a large capacity magazine uh, issue than anything else. Of course, the problem with that is there are already so many of those out there and that's so much more difficult to uh, to police and monitor that I, I don't know. There's a good good solution to, to that. Certainly, you know. Um, and and I think the, the the conservative response, the the pro gun response, typically to the magazine argument is, uh, look, in in most of these these cases, magazine size wouldn't have been a factor because the the shooter has plenty of time to reload. Even if you have smaller magazines, if you have time to reload. Um, uh, because you're essentially shooting at, at unarmed uh, targets, uh, that that is going to be less of a factor. But I, I get that, I, and I get the idea that uh, look, if you are uh, there, there's there's less of an argument to say I need uh, to to have this massive magazine to shoot. You know, get them all. You know, these these are in many cases weapons designed for for fighting in a war, fighting an army. I mean, it, it's it's different than. Uh, certainly hunting or, or what you typically think of as self-defense. Yeah, and, and there's one thing in, in your, in your uh, initial response that I think you didn't address that should be addressed. There's actually, I don't know how significant it is, but there's a not insignificant percentage of the population who would say you're missing something very important. And, and this isn't about hunting. This isn't about self-defense. I mean, I've talked to some of these people saying that, no, sure. we need these weapons because we need to defend ourselves against the government. It's the uh, preservation of liberty. Yes. yes. And I mean, and these are, this is not, you know, some coastal elites or non-coastal elites as, as liberal elites as, as maybe I am, I don't know, might, might say, well, that's just some nuts. But no, I mean, I know a number of highly intelligent, well-educated people, you know, who absolutely 
fundamentally believe that this is the main reason why they need AR-15s and why they need big magazines and that sort of thing. So when when the government becomes, you know, the government which is teetering on the brink of being tyrannical now, in their view, when they get pushed over that brink, well, then they're going to need to defend themselves. And this is what they're going to deal with. And now to me, that's bonkers. But on the other hand, I get it because I feel that especially from certain elements of the right, there's been uh, really a campaign for the last 20 or so years to sow distrust in government. And, and I think that's certainly been very effective. Now, I don't I don't think they're doing it because they – well, I'll just say I don't think they're doing it. They did it because they hate the country or anything like that. It was just a political strategy. But it's a political strategy with some hugely unfortunate repercussions. Yeah, I would I would agree with you on. Look, that that sentiment is out there, uh, and I'd also uh, agree that for me personally, I I think <laughs> you were saying bonkers. I, I think that's that's the way I would look at it also. But you're right. I know plenty of people who are are not uh, in and of themselves bonkers uh, who hold to that um, and and believe whether or not it's it's I'm going to need this weapon in an armed struggle against the, uh, the government. Um, there's the sense that, uh, my being able to own this weapon keeps the government honest, uh, so to speak. Um, it is, it is a, is a check, uh, against tyranny. Um, and look, there's historical purposes or historical, uh, you know, this, this goes, goes way back to our founding, um, that we were concerned about, tyranny of of the federal government. So um, yeah, that's that's out there. Uh, and those people you are not going and, and and those people I guess would fall into my um, if I were to be like Hillary a, a basket of, of uh, I don't think they're deplorable uh, at all, but <laughs> the basket of, of people who um, see this as, hey, I've got this right to do this. I'm doing it. I'm not hurting anybody by doing it. Uh, leave me the hell alone. Um, and that's that's a big that's that's out there. Um, uh, well, I'm sorry. Another, I, thing, yeah. another thing I wanted to you know point out is one thing, and I posted this on Facebook. The, the remarks by uh, by Wayne Lapierre, uh, you know, arguing that uh, people on the left hate individual freedom, they don't care about our school children, children, and they want to make all of us less free. That's the sort of thing. And I don't care whether it comes from the left or the right. You know, and there are people on the left who'd say that. Gun owners who aren't willing to give up their guns, for instance, must want children to die. And right. that's well, the there, sort yeah, of rhetoric that just, who, have, who have said just in the last week that the NRA wants to kill children but, and so forth. But, so. but the idea of, of right after a tragedy like this, uh, taking a national platform to say just things that I, I, I said, it, like I said in, in my Facebook post, that LaPierre's either a fool or a knave, I would say. They're, they're really, with statements like that, it's hard for me to find another another explanation because those things are just patently false and that's the kind of thing that that drives me drives me nuts uh and and has you know i think there's there's certainly a role for the nra but i think that it's 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 morphed certainly if you look at the history of the organization it's morphed from becoming uh an organization that i think supported gun rights but also reasonable restrictions in the name of public safety to being this just sort of all out radical advocacy group that will brook no resistance and and i think it's just really gone off the rails and the fact that that the fact that he would say something like that and it would it would be greeted with wild applause just makes me want to despair 
Well, let's let's put it in perspective, though. This is this is Wade LaPierre talking to CPAC, and that makes it okay. Um, no, no, I'm saying it, it makes it understandable that this is he's throwing red meat to the the crowd. Exactly. I mean, that's, and exactly. I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not say, excusing it or, or saying that it's helpful. Um, but I'm saying that those are those are big applause lines that he knows he's going to get uh, in front of that audience. Um, that being said, I think you can also make the argument uh, that there are plenty of folks out on the left who very much want to ban guns. Uh, and that's not to say they don't care about kids. Uh, I think I, I think but but I think you can I think you can make the the argument that, uh, look, it's it's every time one of these things happen. Um, you have the the same voices jump up and say ban guns, and they're the same voices that always ban guns. And there is sort of the sense of, uh, are they trying to to take this tragedy to advance uh, their their policy goals? Now, well, well of course they can, are. And it can, happens can, on both yeah, sides. And, and yeah, <laughs> and, and it and it does. But uh, I mean, I think what I'm saying is that I think you can look at it as as that, which is um, again certainly not not laudable. Um, but it's different than than saying you know the, my, the other side hates kids wants wants kids to die that sort of thing. Okay, you know I also it seems like one thing that always happens is after one of these tragedies is that the NRA and other folks say well you know what the answer is the answer is more guns and President Trump seems to have embraced this solution wanting to arm you know a bunch of teachers and and of course this is this surprised me on a number of levels well, really I guess it really didn't surprise me because Donald Trump has a penchant for just Saying the first idea, He's a surprising that, guy. Yeah, yeah. comes comes to mind. Uh, number one, I'd say this is certainly not a very conservative idea, and that it kind of goes against the whole idea of federalism and local control. And if you ask school boards and and, and schools and so forth, they say, "My God, that's the last thing we want to do." And and a point I made uh, uh, earlier this week was, if you take a look at the incidence of school shootings. And I just did some real quick math. Uh, and if I have the math right, a student in a K through 12 school has a 0.06% chance per year of being in a school with a school shooting and a 0.00014% chance of being shot in one, whether it's being wounded or killed. And so my, my point here is that when we think about doing draconian things like hardening our schools or handing out a whole bunch of guns to a whole bunch more people, to try to mitigate a risk that is already that small. What we know about risk mitigation is when, you're, when your risk is that small, taking it from almost zero to zero is incredibly hard to do. And so anything that's likely to be even marginally effective at making that less likely is going to have huge unintended consequences. And I think that's, you know, you point to the arming teachers. I can just off the top of my head think of a whole bunch of horrific un or bad, at least, unintended consequences, which is why I think this idea isn't going to like, go well, anywhere, thankfully. Well, for, yeah, for, first of all, I would say that's one of the most sensible things you've posted in quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations. Um, uh, second, I, I'm, I'm not sure what, uh, I, I agree with you on the unintended consequences um, thing and making the schools hard targets that I, I, I think that's, that's a problem. And, and there's a certain maturity that you got to realize that, you know, we live in a world where risk cannot be eliminated entirely. And that goes to all of these discussions of, of, uh, look, um, uh, again, the Columbine, uh, uh, killings happened 
while there was an assault weapon ban uh, in place. And high school kids who would have been underage and not allowed to buy guns uh, anyway bought assault weapons, obtained assault weapons, uh, and used them. Um, so that's that's one of those examples of, look, you, you've got these laws in place that should, should prevent this. Uh, or, or ideally, the left says, would, would prevent this, but they don't. Um, likewise, uh, uh, I mean, I, I can go through all these these different scenarios of uh, sometimes it's if you want to say it's a lack of the, the the regulatory structure working or just just plain human error, bad judgment. In this case, you had a situation where you had an armed security guard uh, on the premises who waited outside. Um, there's there's no way to legislate against that. Um, against that sort of thing. You had the, the FBI who, who had plenty of, of uh, information. You had the sheriff's office who was given plenty of information and nothing was done. And in those cases, maybe there are some legislative tweaks you can do if there was something that prevents the sharing of information. I don't believe that, that there was in this case. Uh, if there is some sort of legal or judicial tool that is needed um, uh, in order to to allow uh, uh, folks to... to um, you know, seek to uh, intervene. Uh, okay, there there may be some room there, but again, it's it's not it's not something that you can just write a law and fix. Um, so I, I look, I I agree with you on that. Now, as far as as far as arming teachers or other school personnel goes, um, I think you're right on the idea of, of Trump's idea of the federal government is going to arm the teachers. Uh, sounds is sort of goofy, um, but I, I think local school districts uh, should take a look at what can we do to have some armed presence uh, at schools, whether that is a, a security guard, a sheriff's office, police officer, whether it's a teacher who's trained, a principal who's trained, it's several teachers or principals who's trained. Uh, I, I think that's that's a good idea. I mean, I, there's the idea is often mocked that, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Uh, but there's also a lot of truth to uh, good guys with guns do stop bad guys with guns, and 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 also the the idea that we we recognize the the imperfections in our system of preventing bad guys from getting guns. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I think that's a that's a statement that's half true. Uh, it's half true. Uh, what I mean by that is that you know you're right. In in an instance, in the very rare instance of and tragic instance of a school shooting, had you know I think president trump pointed out the one the one teacher who charged the, the the guy and if he'd had a gun you know he could have stopped it right there but when you think here's what people don't think about is to to make that possible enough people have to have enough guns and while they might stop or mitigate the odd you know rare school shooting there were going to be those unintended consequences by having that many more guns out there in the population. There's nothing you can do about that. That's just how it is. And so I think that's one of those arguments that on the surface has a certain appeal. But when you think about it more, uh, the, the risks, I would argue, far outweigh any potential benefits for that. But, but I guess, but consider, consider this, though. I mean, we've created our, our schools. They have all these, you know, the signs that say this is a gun-free zone. Uh, the people who are going in to shoot shoot up uh, the school are not going to uh, pay attention to that sign. Uh, the innocent people, the law-abiding people, are. Um, my 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 sense is I think there should be the flexibility uh, for local school districts um, 
to to allow to to change that so that people who are properly armed and trained can carry guns uh, in schools if if they so desire. So I mean, I, that's 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 my thing where I I see a an issue of, of here's the government saying no, uh, you can't protect yourself. Uh, we'll we'll take care of this, and and knowing that they can't, uh, and that's that's what troubles. So I think and what I'm I'm not saying that all teachers ought to be armed. Um, uh, but I'm saying that that shouldn't, that option shouldn't be taken away from people, uh, who would, who would seek to defend themselves or others. Well, I think, yeah. And I think when, when school boards and others have, have sort of studied that when they, what they find is under, you know, under, uh, tense, uh, situations under very stressful situations, like when there is a shooter who's going around, you know, killing people, what you find is even trained police officers. They shoot wildly off the mark an incredibly high percentage of the time, which makes sense because there's, you know, adrenaline's pumping and people are moving around and so forth. And you can just envision all sorts of awful things happening. And, you know, I think people get their sense of how this would work from TV and movies. And that's you know, not where you really want to get your sense of how this is. And thankfully, to this point, I think local school boards who've looked at this and you've talked to teachers unions and they say, well, God, this is the last thing we want. And so I think that that makes a lot of sense. Well, I, 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 I disagree with you on there. And I, I think that, again, this comes down to a uh, if you are in that situation, um, uh, regardless of how good a shot you are, would I mean, I, it's just, would you, would you rather have the gun or not have the gun? Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying, oh, there's, um, you know, again, if, if someone is, you know, God forbid coming into your, your school, your workplace, wherever, uh, with, with a weapon and shooting people, um, are you going to think yourself, think to yourself, boy, I'm glad I don't have a gun. Cause I, I'm not that good a shot anyway. I probably just hurt somebody else. I, you know, I mean, I think let's let's give them a fighting chance. Well, I, I understand what you're saying. But of course, and as I pointed out before, the other side of that equation is the 99.99999% of the time where there isn't someone in there, but you still have another person with a gun. And what are the consequences of that? And we know there are consequences to that because we know certain things happen when more people have guns. And so you have to weigh that in the in the risk in the cost benefit analysis. And I think too many people aren't looking at that part of the equation. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to well, uh, talk about uh, weapons and concern about weapons. Uh, North Korea. You know, just before we wrap up our prep for today's show, actually, the Trump administration announced a new set of sanctions against North Korea, which affect over 50 ships and transport companies in North Korea, China and Taiwan and are intended to uh, further cut off revenue and also fuel for North Korea's nuclear program. Uh, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said the president has made it clear to companies worldwide that if they choose to help fund North Korea's nuclear ambitions, they will not do business with the United States. And of course, this comes not long after the cancellation of a secret meeting scheduled between North Korean officials and Vice President Pence, who was in South Korea for the Winter Olympics, and who took some heat not long ago in the U.S. media for not standing to recognize the athletes of the Korean Unified team. And, you know, people pointing out this from the same guy who walked out of an NFL game last season because some players refused to stand. Uh, so, Jay, uh, any thoughts on, you know, this latest round of sanctions or, or you know, Vice President Pence? On, on oh, uh, good, good for good for Trump. Good for Pence. Uh, well, well done all around. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we have talked about this. We, we keep passing sanctions against the North Koreans 
And the problem is they are evaded by uh, working through mostly the Chinese uh, Chinese companies. Um, and and this is this is a step against those uh, those entities directly that should bear more fruit uh, than what we've seen before. So I think that's that's a good step. Um, I mean, this this is, I think, Donald Trump being realistic. Uh, we have tried all these to accommodate the Chinese and work with the Chinese. And, hey, you'll work with us on on um, on North Korea. And uh, they either cannot or will not. And it looks more and more like they will not. Um, uh, so I think this is a good thing. Now, as far as uh, Pence and the Olympics goes, uh, once again, I, I say uh, good for him. Um, uh, not accommodating a, a North Korean uh, publicity stunt. Um, so, uh, the, and I know that the national, the world, the global media has, has of course fallen in love with, uh, Kim's darling sister, um, uh, who I, <laughs> again, I mean, this, this is, there has always been this sort of, uh, dictator chic thing that the media buys into and, and I've never understood it, but oh, I think that's uh, the left, the left stretch with North Korea, but yeah, I, I don't think the, the, Oh, I, Che Guevara posters. Yeah, that's and, a and, big and difference Fidel from Castro the from the and, regime in um, North Korea. The, but go uh, ahead, Mrs. Mrs. Assad on oh, Vanity Fair. This is a stress, and, and, but uh, go ahead, go ahead. Um, <laughs> no, the, the media has fallen in love with her, and oh, it's a diplomatic coup, and and oh, the the darling cheerleaders who, uh, who's I mean, God forbid they one of them uh, cheers at the wrong time, her family will be executed. Um, I, I I think I I I think it, it's good that uh, Vice President Pence showed that sort of clear-eyed sort of uh, sense of we're not going to be taken in by uh, North Korean uh, publicity stunts. Yeah, well, I, I, of course, thought it was child, childish and pointless, but you'd expect me to say that. You know, but as to the sanctions thing, I'm kind of a two minds here. You know, I, I, I certainly agree that we, we've tried other approaches, and it just seems like we keep on getting played. And this has been under both previous Republican and Democratic presidents. But on the other hand, my concern, and I think a lot of people share this concern, is what happens when you push a, a, a regime like this up against a wall and give them no out, no alternative? I don't know that we're exactly doing that, but I can, you know, I can certainly see where this is a, a dangerous game. And you know, we, we've talked about this before. I don't think there are any good options, so I certainly understand the idea of trying something different but of course that comes with its own set of you know its own set of risks yeah I, well i think the objective uh, look i mean i i don't will will kim bow to sanctions uh doubtfully yeah um and that's my but, concern but uh are there you know is there a general another general uh, uh <laughs> other family members uh who would at some point say this is enough is enough and that's that's right. And they may be better or worse. Hard to imagine them being worse. Um, but I think I think that figures in the calculations. Yeah, yeah. I it's like we've talked about it before. Like I said, there aren't a whole lot of there. There are no good choices actually in this. Yeah. So. All right. Well, before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. First, we have, uh, let's see, Matthew, Eva, Evan, and Joe, all of whom are helping us out with a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. And Joe, Thanks, guys. Yep. We really appreciate it. And Joe uh, wrote in, hey, guys, I'm back on the platform. I'm giving Patreon a second shot. Keep up the hard work. Thank you. 
Next is Jared, who made a generous contribution to the show through PayPal. And he wrote in, I'm just a poor, unemployed graduate uh, about to enter the Army. I don't have much, but I'm a firm believer in supporting what you believe in. Thanks for setting a great example of how politics can be discussed. Well, thank you. Well, thanks. And thanks for your service. Absolutely. You know, and when you make a pledge of financial support to this show, we would love to include a message from you in, in our shout out like we just did with uh, uh, Jared and, and Joe. So if there's anything you'd like us to pass along, you can include your message in both Patreon and PayPal when you make that contribution. Or you can just send us something at mail at politicsguys.com. And of course, now that we're ad free, listener support, you know, it's what keeps the lights on. So if you'd like to join Matthew, Eva, Evan, Joe, Jared, and all of our other great Politics Guy supporters, go Go to politics guy, poli- I can say our, our URL, politicsguys.com slash support, or just go to the main page and you'll see on the menu, uh, support the show. Thanks so much. All right, moving on. You know, Jay, we've been talking a lot about gerrymandering of late. And this week, well, we're talking about it again in the wake of another important development. Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, five of whose seven members are Democrats, released its own congressional map after the Republican state legislature and the Democratic governor couldn't agree on a map of their own. And this all stems from a lawsuit filed by the League of Women Voters in which the court ruled that the current Republican-drawn map violated the state constitution and then ordered the legislature and governor to create a new map by February 15th. Now, the map drawn by the court splits far fewer counties and creates districts that are a lot more compact than the current map. And it also most more closely reflects the overall partisan balance of the state. It creates eight districts that were won by Clinton in 2016 and 10 that were won by Trump. Now, currently, five of Pennsylvania's 18 congressional districts are held by Democrats. As you might expect, Pennsylvania Republicans were not happy with this map, and it's likely to result in Democrats picking up somewhere between two and four seats in 2018 and holding them beyond that holds. But their legal options, as I understand it, are limited because the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court has previously decided not to review the case, something we talked about a few weeks ago. Right. But some Republican legislators in the state are actually calling for impeachment proceedings against these judges. Uh, And if Republicans in Pennsylvania unite on this, they'd actually be able to do that because there aren't enough Democratic legislators to stop an impeachment drive. Um, And President Trump chimed in with a tweet. Uh, He said, hope Republicans in the great state of Pennsylvania challenged a new pushed congressional map all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. Your original was correct. Don't let the Dems take elections away from you so that they can raise money, raise taxes and waste money. So, Jay, uh, what do you think about this? Uh, well, I've I've talked about this uh, a number of times before, and I think the whole idea of a court drawing legislative maps uh, is is absolutely dreadful. Uh, for I, I can list a whole lot of reasons. Uh, one being that's not a court's job. Um, that's that's a, a political decision and a, not a judicial decision. Um, second, to the extent this is based on the Pennsylvania Constitution, and I'm not an expert on the Pennsylvania Constitution, um, but but my sense is I, I don't think there is any sort of explicit right uh, to have districts drawn uh, as as you might think uh, or as you as someone might feel are competitive or not competitive enough. Um, I, it's it's just to me this this is this is mind-boggling. It's it's a horrible precedent because. 
what happens is from now on, every election is going to be subject to judicial review. Every map is going to be uh, redone, not for the the typical reasons uh, that courts have allowed it, uh, for example, uh, racial discrimination, um, uh, but but to have some sort of uniform uh, statewide that the you know the del- uniform statewide delegation reflects the, the the state as a whole, and and I just don't I don't find any uh, that right anywhere in the um, the U.S. Constitution. Now again, I don't know that much about the Pennsylvania Constitution. Maybe they've got something in there uh that that says that but this is not the job of the courts uh to be redrawing districts it is a a political decision and again that's maybe you don't like that but but that's how we decide things in in democracies and if if we've if we go down this route um again you'll you're going to see more of this turmoil of judges get in rewrite the maps legislatures try to impeach the judges uh that's it's bad all around. Well, you know, I part I partly agree with you actually. I think that judges that courts should absolutely not be in the business of creating uh creating uh, congressional maps. I think that's not their job. It is a political thing and not a judicial function. Uh where I differ from you is I think sometimes as a last resort if the court can reasonably concludes that a map violates the constitution and that the legislature that the democratically elected representatives and you know are are not correcting the problem that they have a duty <laughs> To step in, you know, and certainly you and I might argue about what this right is and does it exist, whether it's in the Pennsylvania right. well, and or the again, US I guess Constitution. Sort of that what you just said sort of highlights my point is the um, it's sort of the court decides if, if they think it's a problem. Um, and well, sure. I guess that's 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 the that's what that's what troubles me. Well, I, I would say that's uh, the, the job. People, of the, court. the people aren't allowed. The people aren't allowed to make up their mind. Well, and and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The the Pennsylvania map in and of itself is not uh, compared to to other gerrymandering uh, instances that that we've looked at uh, is really pretty pretty benign. Um, and that's that's I think what's what's sort of what's sort of troubling is and and there's always also uh, as we talked about the way Pennsylvania is geographically demographically there's only so many ways you can split it up. Yeah, but, but again, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to ignore the fact that by pretty much any independent criteria. I mean, if you created these, if you didn't know which party was Democrats and which party was Republicans, uh, this map by any sort of nonpartisan criteria makes so much more sense. I mean, from from the very beginning, the whole idea behind congressional districting was that communities should be kept together and they should be compact and contiguous and so forth. And this map does, this is the kind of thing that rationally put together redistricting commissions or groups would do and should be doing. And that's why I say, you know, you're right and that the court shouldn't have to intervene, but when it gets so bad that it, it rises to the level of a constitutional problem, then the courts have to step in. And I'm going to make an analogy, and you're going to disagree with it in part, and that's okay. okay. But it reminds me, not nearly to the same extent, but where the courts had to step in to say, hey, listen, congressional districts have to be roughly the same number of people, which wasn't always the case. There used to be these, you know, some districts would be really small and some would be really large, and so representation was obviously skewed by that. Now, One, one man, one vote. Exactly. Yes. Now, that... 
this doesn't rise to that. I I'm not. No, no offense. No offense that. to women, but, but that was that was yeah. the that was how they framed it. But go ahead. It's <laughs> not that Jay had the chance to say person and decided to say yes. man because he's a sexist. That's, that's, you know, he's, that was historically he's what a sexist happened. for other yes. reasons. Maybe no, no, you're yeah. not Jay. But but and so that's how I see it. You know, and I think that's where our our fundamental disagreement and the fundamental disagreement between the left and the right and on the left. Our concern, my concern, is the horrible precedent that's being challenged is, well, impeach these judges because they reached the decision you don't like. That, to me, is a very disturbing. Now, I don't think it's actually going to go through, so maybe it's more talk than anything at this point, but just the fact that we've sort of normalized this type of talk bothers me. Well, I, again, I think that the impeach these judges, it's not necessarily impeach these judges because they've reached a decision we don't like. It's it's impeach these judges because they have uh, exceeded their their judicial authority and assumed uh, a legislative role. Um, I agree. It probably it probably doesn't doesn't get that far. Uh, impeachment of judges, uh, regardless on, on on grounds any other grounds other than you know serious personal uh, uh, malfeasance um, is pretty rare. So I, I don't I don't think that's that's going to happen. But yeah. All right. Well, you know there was a new development very late uh, this week in the the Robert Mueller investigation of Russian influence in the 2018 election. Uh, additional charges were filed against former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, as well as his business partner and fellow Trump campaign official Rick Gates, who pled guilty to two counts and will cooperate with prosecutors. Now, the third the, there's a 32 count indictment, and it claims that the two obtained millions of dollars through fraudulent loans and. Uh, tax cheating in a multi-year scheme. And then late on Friday, a new indictment came down uh, alleging that Manafort secretly paid a group of former uh, top European politicians uh, millions of dollars to take positions that were favorable to his client, Ukraine, including by lobbying in the United States. So, So, Jay, it seems to me that these charges, while, you know, very extraordinarily serious, aren't directly related to Russian influence over the election, though I guess there might be some indirect influence through Ukrainian connections, maybe. But as our resident attorney uh, on the show, uh, what's your sense of why Robert Mueller brought these additional additional indictments? Um, My sense is because he doesn't have anything else. Uh, This is, again has nothing to do with the election. This is all conduct that occurred before the election uh, and relates to money laundering um, and in some cases uh, failing to fill out the uh, foreign agent forms, which again, it's it's illegal, it's bad, you shouldn't do it. Uh, but it doesn't have anything to do with Donald Trump. It doesn't have anything to do with Russians uh, trying to influence our election. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with with uh, collusion, other than if you want to try to connect the dots and say, well, Manafort knew these Ukrainians who knew these Russians, and Manafort knew Trump, therefore there's collusion. Um, again, that's a that's a pretty pretty far far stretch. Uh, with the the new indictment of the um, uh, uh, oh, I'm forgetting his name now, uh, Manafort's um, Gates. Gates um, uh, sort of partner underling. Again, um, these these are essentially money laundering charges, um, uh, you know, uh, bribery charges. To, to, but so I mean, 
But this it is pretty it, standard, right? I mean, when you when you uh, think that somebody has information that might be useful in your your to you know your primary target, your primary investigation, you you file some charges and get them to cooperate and hope they they roll on on uh, you know the people and, and give you the information you need. So it's I mean that to me seems to be what a lot of people are arguing is is going on as opposed to well he has nothing he just needs to file something but he thinks that there actually is something there directly related but he needs to get to it by going through these people for their other illegal activities because otherwise yeah. what leverage does he have well, Say, well but here, please, here's the thing. so us? he's so he's so gates is is pleading guilty to testify against manafort for further uh Again, malfeasance uh, prior to the election that's not related to Donald Trump. Um, again, I, I don't see the connection yet. I mean, I suppose there are the folks who are saying, oh, he's on to something. He's, I bet, but I don't see it. And, you know, I'll say this is it was a little unfortunate the after the, the Russian indictments that the, the 13 Russian uh, trolls, as it were, um, uh, you and I both had the week off. So we really didn't get to, to, to talk about that. But to me, again, this this struck me as. Um, if, if you're not sort of what, what the 13 Russians are essentially charged with were, you know, sort of making statements to, you know, inflame uh, American passions and, uh, get people mad at each other on Facebook and, and in social media, uh, which that's pretty much what everybody on social media does every day. Yeah. But the way uh, they did and, it was illegal. I mean, it's well, not like, yeah, exactly, I mean, you're minimizing well, it. That's, that's exact. No, let me tell you, minimizing it. You know what they're being charged with is they did this stuff and they didn't file as as foreign agents. Well, yeah, uh, that's significant. Well, so so what I'm saying is the the crime is sort of if they had filled out the right paperwork, it would have been it would have been legal. Uh, and you know the FBI and Mueller has spent so much time, so much money uh, on this, and it, it's. Well, I'm glad you brought that sort of, up. Sort of, I'm really glad you brought that up because. Because, you know, I'm hearing this a lot, right? This is this investigation is dragging on forever. But if you look historically, it's actually moving incredibly fast compared to similar investigations in the past. I mean, these things typically take several years, even before the first indictments are out. And, you know, four or more years to wrap up entirely. You take a look at, for instance, Whitewater lasted over six years, you know, and and so if you you look at it in context. I know maybe it's because these days we expect everything to happen so quickly, but you, everyone should have known. Well, maybe not everyone should have known, but I think it was obvious to, to everyone who's had any knowledge of how these things work that this wasn't going to wrap up in a year or two years. That's not how these investigations happen. So he hasn't spent a ton of time or money historically. Speaking. It's just not sure. the case. All right. All right. Well, sure. I mean, and again, it brings to mind uh, Patrick Fitzgerald's investigation. He was, of course, appointed by Mueller uh, to to uh, suss out uh, who leaked the identity of Valerie Plame. Uh, turns out Fitzgerald discovered that information three months into the uh, into the investigation, and yet dragged it on for another what three four years, eventually getting uh, a conviction, which was. Yeah, the uh, Valerie Plame story mind. was yeah, it was not just short of three years. Yeah, yeah, uh, which which to my mind was someone was charged with with misremembering or having a different memory of something than a uh, another witness who was dead and, and couldn't be cross examined. So, um, but but more to my point is, <laughs> if this is if this is what we're looking at, uh, if this is the Russian 
the crime is is being a troll on social media, uh, something which if done by an American citizen would be perfectly legal, uh, and, uh, protected by the First Amendment and encouraged in many quarters. Um, this it, it it strikes me that this is a a, a colossal I, yeah. waste of time. And, and I agree. And, I agree. If that's all there is, you're absolutely right. If nothing more than this comes of it, then yeah, there's not a whole lot of there, there, big nothing burger, as they say. But I guess my point is that this is still very early days, and it's it's not at all outside of the realm of possibility. I would say it's even fairly likely that this these are just opening stages of something far larger that uh, Robert Mueller is trying to put together. And we'll see how that happens. And so I guess my point would be, just in general, people are probably tired of me saying this, right? But that it's difficult to judge these things until more comes out and we really kind of have to wait and see. I think we're not going to get a sense of whether this was uh, a good, a worthwhile investigation for at least a couple more years. And that's, that's maybe a minimum. But that's just the nature of the beast. I, I, I think I think the yeah the couple more years is is a little uh, a little far fetched. And I really look. I completely I completely no. I completely agree with. You. Oh no. I'm, do I think the Mueller will try to to drag this out for a couple more years investigating every financial transaction Donald Trump has ever been involved in? Sure. Uh, whether it relates to Russians or or whomever. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I, I don't know that the the American people are going to have the appetite for it. Uh, and second, I agree with you that we ought not to jump in and, and uh, make judgments uh, hastily on these sort of things, and let's see where the investigation leads. But I also think it's entirely appropriate to look at where the investigation is and comment on it as it as it moves along. Sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. And if, if this is what we've got so far, I'm not I'm not seeing the big there there just because I'm not sure who. Uh, yeah, I hear you. you know, that's again, a fair what, point. Who, who's, who's the witness that we're trying to get to turn? And again, maybe we just don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there who's really got something really damning. Um, but I'm not seeing it at this point. No, no. And I, I, no one's seeing it at this point. And so the, the question remains, is it there to be seen? Right. So maybe in episode, I don't know, 437. We'll, we'll, we'll just keep looking. We'll just keep looking for another five years because it's got to be there because it's Well, Trump. no, no. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying it's got to be there. I'm saying that as long as the investigation stays within its its purview that was laid down under the original charge, then, you know, that's that's perfectly legitimate. And so I guess the matter becomes, to what extent do you think that Robert Mueller's, you know, long history of what most people thought was very dedicated service to the country and impartiality and all that, which even a lot of Republicans, most Republicans were saying when he was appointed, At the you know, time, yeah. is that yeah. who he is or is he a partisan hack who's out to get the president, as now a lot of these same people are saying? I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. So, all right. So it's time for what we're reading, where we step back and, you know, talk about some of the more in-depth, thoughtful things we're reading, listening to, or watching. Uh, Jay, do you want to start us off this week? I, I will. And, and you know, this one, this one goes out to all the, all the haters uh, who say I'm so predictable. Um, uh, this is a, a movie I happened to catch on Turner Classic Movies a couple weeks ago because I'm, I'm a huge Turner Classic movie fan. Uh, but, uh, the movie is the times of Harvey milk, uh, and it's a 1984 documentary 
about uh, Harvey Milk, who was uh, the first, if if not the first, one of the, the first openly gay uh, politicians in our country in San Francisco. Uh, and he was uh, murdered um, in, uh, I want to say, 1977. Um, uh, anyway, the, the documentary uh, is, is it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I'm certainly someone who who wouldn't agree with with Harvey Milk on a lot of politics, uh, but but he comes across as as a as a honest, decent guy. And this is all you know footage from the time. And it's also fascinating uh, again to see the way the world was um, 40 years ago. Uh, that that you know how attitudes have changed. Uh, uh, and it's it's um, there's also some some great sort of uh, cameos by. Uh, you know, at that time, city councilwoman uh, Diane Feinstein, um, who uh, who discusses, uh, you know, uh, and they talk about her her need to carry a gun for safety, uh, which is absolutely I absolutely love. Um, and and if if you don't if you don't know the story, though, I mean, uh, Milk was killed along with the mayor of San Francisco uh, by another city councilman. Um, uh, so it's 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 I don't want to, but didn't spoil it, but. Um, no, I mean, and again, I think there's also some, some fascination to look at because I, I didn't, I wasn't really that familiar, uh, with, with the intricacy of the story. Again, I knew who Harvey Milk was. I knew he had been killed. Um, uh, and often he's set up as sort of a martyr, uh, to gay rights. He was killed because he was gay. Um, but you watch the movie and it, it, I, I don't come away with that. I mean, it, it seems it was much more of a personal, um, uh, uh a, a situation but anyway that is that would be my recommendation and i i don't know if we're going to be re-showing it on turner classic movies uh this month if not it is available on uh, amazon uh, amazon prime yeah you know i've i actually i haven't seen that yet you did, didn't see that coming did you no i did not i i did not uh you know i i i also haven't seen the the times of harvey milk but i did see and i actually used it in my class uh one of my classes back a while ago, the fictionalized version of that story, uh, Milk with Sean Penn. Yeah, it was, a, it was a very interesting, great movie. I enjoyed it a lot. So I'm going to have to put this on my list as well. I'm a fan of TCM as well. So my choice this week, well, there's an article I read, I thought was really fascinating, called Who Needs Congressional Districts? And a lot of people don't know this, but there's nothing in the Constitution that says we actually have to have congressional districts. And at the very beginning of the country, in fact, a lot of states didn't have districts and elected members of the House at large. And that really changes a lot of how representation might work. And, and so this article is really sort of a fascinating history and just it makes you think in a different way of, of, I think, of things that you just assume, well, that's just how it is and how it has to be. So it's not, not something that's going to happen. We're not going to change from a single member district or anything like that. I don't expect that to happen. But I thought it was fascinating, if nothing else, for sort of a, a history lesson as to how this came about. So I re I'm recommending that. Um, also, I, I wanted to, not so, well, I guess it's what I'm reading. A while ago, a couple of, well, I guess about three weeks ago now, I normally, my main news source is the New York Times. That's, that's I, I mean, I read a bunch of other things. I read the Wall Street Journal, a whole bunch of sources. But I always start with one kind of paper that I base things off of. And for, for years, it's been the New York Times. Well, about three weeks ago, I had some weird idiosyncratic problem with with my uh, my laptop, and the New York Times site was not displaying correctly. Like it hated my laptop. I don't know. Um, but uh, uh, so I switched to the Washington Post, 
And it, it's really kind of fascinating because it's some of the same stories, but the switch gave me a sense of kind of how these two main uh, news sources for the, this, you know, for, from the left, I guess you would say, uh, cover the news. And, and I got to say, I'm really glad for this computer problem, which has since been solved because I've actually found the coverage in the, the Washington Post to be deeper and better than what I was getting from the New York Times. And so uh, I have I have switched to the Washington Post as my main uh, political news source. And uh, I'm very happy that that lucky accident happened. So I wanted to pass that along. All right. Well, I mean, I, I, gosh, I mean, that's talk about mixed feelings for me. I mean, I'm, I, I suppose I'm always happy to hear the New York Times loses a subscriber. Uh, oh, no, I but, still subscribe. You know, there you go. Oh, I still right, subscribe. Well. I subscribe to both. Loses <laughs> a reader. I, I subscribe to the, the Washington Post, New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. I want to keep that sort of great journalism alive and going, so, so I do what I can. And also, I should point out that the Washington Post has by far the best major media uh, motto, democracy dies in darkness. How can you not love that? I mean, that's just great. Anyway, okay, uh, that's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. You know, listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. So if you'd like to help us out, go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's the direct link. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com and go to support in the main menu. Uh, and subscribing to the show, that also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Whether you share it to say you should definitely check this out. It was a great episode. Or... Oh my God, Jay is just insane. Not, we get a lot of that. You know, yeah, we, <laughs> or anything in between, really. But, and it's easy to do right in your podcast app. There's that little share symbol. Just click on the triangle thing, you know, and there you go. And because word of mouth really is our best advertising. And, you know, and, and leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also does help. So if you want to get in touch with us, well, you probably know how to reach us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.